0: Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. It's great to see you today. Take your Bible, paper, or digital, and find your way to Isaiah chapter 9, and we'll start there in just a few minutes. If you caught last week's message, then you know that we're following along with the traditional uh, Advent calendar for the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, and last week we looked at hope. Maintaining hope. And this week we're going to focus on peace, peace on earth, which, uh, to my way of thinking, is probably the most mo- uh, well known and valued promise of Christmas. I mean, it is plastered on our Christmas cards. I got a few to show you here. Uh, we know that uh, the whole idea of peace on earth started with the angels that saying, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And then, uh, of course, uh, it is absolutely peace for the entire planet, for the entire earth, and then uh, a lot of cards will have the dove, which is kind of an international symbol of peace. And then, you know, cr- no Christmas would be complete without the Peanuts gang getting into the whole peace on earth. And by the way, who is this Peanuts character? Okay, well, there was the uh, Jeopardy buzzer. And, uh, but I did hear, actually, I heard somebody. You, you got it, didn't you? Uh, Sally Brown, Sally Brown, Charlie Brown's sister. She appeared in 1959, so she's been there for a long time. We just don't know who she is, most of us. Anyway, uh, then, uh, of course, peace on earth, all centers around on Jesus' coming and being born in Bethlehem. You know, but the problem with Christmas is that the peace of Christmas sometimes get lost in the mad rush to malls and in the truckloads of Amazon packages that show up on your doorstep and then you have to decide whether you're gonna keep those gifts or you're gonna send them back. And then you've got parties to go to and extra things in your schedule that you might have to make food for and relatives coming in or relatives that you're gonna go see and you're trying to plan all that out. And in a lot of ways, there's really nothing peaceful about the Christmas season, is there? But still, Christmas is the season where uh, we remember uh, the coming of Jesus. And one of the main reasons that God sent his son into the world was to bring us peace. And we sing about it in carols. We did this morning. But uh, think about uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing and the line, uh, Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. So that's a line that gives us a picture of Jesus as God's peace uh, between people and God. And then my all-time favorite Christmas carol is uh, O Holy Night, and and that that powerful uh, verse that that says, uh, truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love, and his gospel is peace, right. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. But don't you sometimes wonder, like, where is this peace that we sing about? I mean, uh, the, pro- the prophets promised a time of peace. The angels promised a time of peace. Jesus promises us peace. Uh, the apostle Paul and all the other New Testament writers uh, promise us peace. But when you look around the world, you see very little of the peace that Christmas uh, talks about. I mean, at least it's not in the way the Bible describes it. I mean, I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there are more than 40 active wars going on around the world today. And then you look at what's going on in our country. There's no peace in our land. And, uh, and then you think about your own life. I mean, like, what are you dealing with uh, that's robbing you of peace? A, a conflict in a relationship or conflict at work or a personal struggle an addiction maybe that's robbing you of peace. And then just on top of all that, we're busy, we're stressed, we rush around at Christmas trying to get everything done. I mean, no question about it, there are circumstances in your life in my life that make it hard sometimes to experience peace. And so, I don't know, sometimes for me when I think about this season, you know, like from now to Christmas Day, I don't really think of Christmas as a time of peace. Uh, uh, now, you might be here this morning, and you, you're, maybe you're not into this whole church thing, and maybe it just doesn't seem all that relevant to you, and maybe a, a lot of what Christians believe seems like nothing more than just wishful thinking, and maybe this is one of those very things that makes you wonder if Christians aren't a half-bubble-off plumb. I mean, you're you're saying, you know, Jesus, really, Jesus came to bring his peace? I mean, if he's the prince of peace that you Christians talk about, like, where is this peace? Where is peace on earth? And believe me, I I understand, I understand your skepticism. I, I, I get it. I mean, how can Christians sing about peace coming at Christmas when there's so little peace in our world today? Now, fortunately, uh, that's a question that the Bible does answer. But as with a lot of very important questions, you can't just answer this question with a soundbite. I mean, it's gonna take me about 40 minutes to answer this question, so I figure you you got no other place to go, right? So, I mean, you came here and and, uh, I did have somebody come up to me, a a kid come up to me and said, are you preaching today? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, how long are you gonna preach? (laughs) And I said, probably too long for you. <laughs> so it's gonna take me about 40 minutes. And here's, the, here's one of the reasons is if we're gonna answer this question, what, you know, why don't we experience this peace? Or where is the peace? We gotta go back to the beginning and find out what happened to it. So uh, we gotta go back to Genesis uh, one through three, and I'm just gonna talk it out. We're not gonna really turn there. But uh, the question is, why is there no peace? Where's all the violence and the injustice and the oppression? Where does that come from? What's the cause? What's the first cause? Well, according to the Bible, God created everything and everyone, and he created this world and everything in it as a good place, a very good place, in fact. And it was God's desire that we would live in relationship with him and each other, in relationships that are characterized by love and harmony and peace. But God gave people a choice. We could trust God and live our lives under his good and gracious rule, or we could go our own way and decide for ourselves what we think is right and wrong and true and false and good and evil. And the Bible tells us that that sometime after God created this very good world, our first parents chose to make their own decisions. They wanted to rule over their own lives rather than have God rule over their lives. And the immediate result of their sin, and sin is simply the desire to live my life my way rather than God's way. But in the chapters that follow Genesis 3 and fall, our fall into sin, you see that God's good world becomes corrupt and violent and chaotic and distorted and dark. And sometimes people blame God for all the pain and suffering that goes on in the world, but I would remind you that this is not the world that God created. This is not the good world that God created. This is the world that we created when we thought we could run it better than God could. And so, the, what we're living in today is a broken world, a fallen world. And the Bible tells us that this brokenness um, permeates. Everything, There's a, our, our relationship with God is broken. Our relationships with each other are broken. Uh, our relationship with the creation, with nature is broken so that absolutely nothing in our world is the way it's supposed to be. We're not seeing the beauty that we ought to see. We're not experiencing the peace and harmony that God intended for us to experience because the world is broken and it's dark. So why is there so little peace in the world? in a very general sense, the darkness that's in our world is the result of people turning their backs on God and living our lives our way rather than God's way. Now, when we step into God's story in Isaiah's day, 2700 years ago, Isaiah is writing to people, the Jewish people, at a time when their country is ravaged by the threat of war and oppression. In fact, the passage here in Isaiah in verse one says that those who have been living in darkness and distress will do so no more. So what has characterized life for them has been oppression and distress and despair and war and the threat of more war. And verse one mentions these two regions, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, and these were the two northeastern tribes of Israel that bordered on the massive Assyrian empire, and they were the first territories to be invaded by the Assyrians, and the people there were deported, and the land that was promised to Abraham and his descendants became the property of the king of Assyria, and things were going to get worse. They were going to get much worse. Now, their biggest problem, though, was not wars and rumors of wars. If you go back to Isaiah chapter eight, what you find is that their number one problem, the number one problem with God's people is, is not the threat of an invading army. The biggest problem is that God's people simply do not trust him. The threat of war is on the horizon but their greatest problem is that they refuse to look to God as their help and their hope. Instead, they look for their, to their own wisdom they're trying to find the help they need by trusting in their own plans and their own agendas, and they're trying to work things out in ways that will get them a quick fix to the problem. So instead of listening to what God has to say, they're seeking and listening to the counsel of people who don't even know God. Again, they're looking for quick relief, a quick solution to their problems, and they're forming alliances with other nations, hoping that they can to avoid the coming disaster. And basically God says as you make these alliances, as you turn away from me, he says the darkness will get worse and you'll experience more and more of the broken life that you're hoping to avoid. And you see they're they're repeating the sins of their first parents back in Genesis 3. What you read over and over again in the Bible is that our main problem is we do exactly what our first parents did. We do exactly what the people in Isaiah's did and that is when things get dark and when we feel threatened, when things aren't going the way that we think they should go, we try to fix things our way rather than God's way. We seek quick fix solutions to the pain and the hurt and the distress in our lives and in our world by relying our, on our own wits and wisdom rather than on God's word and God's wisdom. And it's not just the darkness out there that's the problem in here. I mean, we experience a lack of peace more personally as, uh, as our bodies break down uh, or as, as friends and family let us down or as we struggle relationally with each other. I mean, we, we experience it in the struggles in our marriage and the struggles with our kids, with people at work, and even with people at church. I mean, in all these ways and more, we encounter the brokenness of this fallen world in very up close and personal ways. And all too often, we come up with our own solutions to the problems we face. Oh, we pray and we ask God for help, but when help doesn't come, right away, or it doesn't come in the way that we hope it would come, then we try to orchestrate solutions apart from God. And as we try to find solutions apart from God, the darkness gets worse, and we experience more and more of the broken life that we're hoping to avoid. Uh, the bottom line is this, we, we will not experience peace when we try to find peace apart from God. You will not find peace if you try to find peace apart from God. So what's the answer? Well, the Bible says that since in and of ourselves, we can't make the darkness go away, that God had to come and do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. So God came in the person of Jesus to reestablish peace, and that's what the passage in Isaiah nine is all about. Look at it there in verse six. Isaiah says, for unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. He will establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So Isaiah tells us that one day, someday in the future, God's gonna send a a Messiah. He'll come as a child who is born, as a son who will be given, and people from every tribe and every nation uh, in the world will call him Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God and Everlasting Father, and they will call him Prince of Peace. Why? Because he will set things right between people and God again, He will set things right between people again, and ultimately he will set the world back to the very good world that God created in the beginning, and that is what this passage is promising, that one day the Prince of Peace will come, and look at verse seven again, and he will set up a government in this world Not in some airy, ghost-like, heavenly, cloudy kind of thing. No, he's coming back to this world and Messiah will set up his government where righteousness and justice and peace will characterize life here on planet Earth forever. Now, this title, Prince of Peace, is the Hebrew Sar Shalom. And Sar is translated peace, but the emphasis is not so much on prince as the son of a king, but as the, the emphasis is on a prince being a ruler, a governor, a noble official, a captain. Captain. It means one who rules over, one who's responsible for. And shalom here is the word for peace. And this is the standard Hebrew greeting. So if if Jews met, meet each other and they say shalom, What they're saying is, may you live in anticipation of the day in which God makes all things whole again. May you live in the anticipation of the day when God makes things whole again. Now, we typically think of peace as simply the uh, absence of conflict, or we think about it in sentimental kind of ways, like we wish for peace, like in 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 greeting cards or the hippie kind of peace from the days of my youth, you know, like peace, brother, you know, or all we are saying is give peace a chance, that kind of thing. But in the Bible, the word shalom is much deeper. It's much richer than that. A guy named Cornelius Plantinga uh, has written a book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And he describes God's peace or shalom like this. He says, We call it peace, but it means far more than simply peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspire joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other, way, in other words, is the way things ought to be. But he also says that the great prophets of the Bible dreamed of a new age in which human crookedness would be straightened out in rough places made plain, the foolish would be made wise and the wise humble. They dreamed of a time when the deserts would flower and the mountains would run with wine. Weeping would cease and the people would go to sleep without weapons on their lap. People would work in peace and work to fruitful effect. Lambs could lie down with lions and nature will be would be fruitful and filled with wonder upon wonder and all humans would be knit together in brotherhood and sisterhood and all nature and all humans would look to God and walk with God and lean towards God and delight in God. Now that is Isaiah's vision of God's peaceable kingdom that we lost in the Garden of Eden when we set out to create a better world for ourselves than we thought that God could gift us. But the promise of God, the great hope, our great hope is is that one day, the shalom of God will be restored on this earth in God's future kingdom. And Isaiah is saying, God will absolutely for sure, no question about it, God will send a person, a prince of peace, and in him, you will discover the way things ought to be. You will discover who you ought to be. You'll discover the way the world ought to be. Isaiah tells us, in no uncertain terms, God will reestablish peace and fullness of life in this world. He will have what he's always wanted. Now, the remarkable thing about this promise is that 700 years after Isaiah makes the promise, this prophecy about the coming Prince of Peace, 700 years later, God still has not made good on that promise. But still, there were faithful Jewish people who had not given up hope. They were still clinging to that promise. They were waiting for God to make that promise come true. And so, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, there were people in Israel who, despite the fact that their ancestors had been overrun by the Assyrians, and then overrun by the Babylonians, and then the Persians, and then the Greeks... And then that first Christmas, at the first Christmas in the days of Caesar Augustus, they were living under the oppression of Rome. Again, despite all that 700 year dark history of foreign oppression, there were still people in Israel who believed God would make good on his promise. Mary was one of them, Joseph was one of them. Last week we looked at Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were waiting for Isaiah's promise to be fulfilled. And then if you read on in the Christmas story in Luke 2.25, we meet a man named Simeon, and he was waiting, Luke tells us, for the consolation of Israel, which was the fulfillment of Isaiah's promise. And then you read on, and you read about a prophetess named Anna in Luke 2.38, who, when she saw the baby Jesus, she spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. That's the promise of Isaiah. So there were faithful men and women who believed that God would make good on his promise to bring peace on earth. And these people, even in the midst of difficult, oppressive circumstances, they experienced personal peace in their lives because they trusted in a 700-year-old, unfulfilled promise of future peace. And you see this all through the Bible. All through the Bible, God's faithful people experience personal peace by trusting in God's promise of future peace. Let me back that up, say it one more time. God's faithful people experience personal peace by trusting in God's promise of future peace. So when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, a, 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 a renewed hope was born in their hearts. As they encountered Jesus, they came to believe that Jesus was in fact the Prince of Peace that Isaiah pro- promised, Who and he would come and he would reestablish God's kingdom on earth. They came to believe that Jesus' government of righteousness and justice and peace would rule and reign evermore, Israel would be able to throw off her uh, 700-year history of oppressors and Israel would be back on top. They came to believe that Jesus would make things the way they're supposed to be. But you say, okay, Jesus came and people believed that he was the one who would set the world right again, but the world is still full of injustice and violence and oppression. What about that? Where's the peace that Isaiah and the angels Promised. Where's the peace that was promised at that first Christmas? Good question. I'm glad you're still with me. Um, here, here's the deal. According to the Bible, the the peace of God comes into our world in two stages. It comes into our world in two stages. Stage one, when Jesus came the first time, He came to give us His peace. He came to give us His peace. Now, this this peace that he gives us comes in three parts, okay? First of all, Jesus came to make peace between God and people possible again. He came to make peace between God and people possible again. The break in the relationship with God that occurred way back at the beginning, the brokenness In our world, that has come because people refuse to give God his rightful place as governor of our lives. Well, we we couldn't do one thing to repair that damage. I mean, no social engineering, no religious teaching, and there is no political policy ever has been or or exists today or touted today. No political policy will ever bring in the peace that God has promised us. But the problem is, is because our bent towards self-government runs way too deep. So God came in the person of Jesus, again, to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And Jesus came to set things right between people and God again. He came to make peace with God possible again. And the way that he accomplished that was through his death on the cross. Now, here's the deal. Isaiah didn't just see the birth of the Messiah. Isaiah also had a vision of the suffering and death of the Messiah as well. So look at this passage from Isaiah 53, verse five. But he, the Messiah, was pierced. And this is all past tense. It's, very, it's like it's already happened 700 years before it happened. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was laid on him. The punishment that brought us peace was laid on him. That means when you put your faith in Jesus, when you trust that Jesus has restored this broken relationship with God through his death, then you can begin to experience his peace, his wholeness, completeness, satisfaction, because Jesus' death for your sins has made fullness of life with God possible again. Now, Isaiah said that in the Old Testament, but Paul says that in the New Testament. Look at Romans 5, verse 1. Paul writes, therefore, since we have been justified, which that just means made right, declared right, put right with God, since we've been put right with God through faith, look at it, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing. Through faith in Christ, we have peace with God. But that's not all that Jesus accomplished at his first coming. Now, because of what Jesus has done on the cross, he's made peace between people possible again. And that's the second part of stage one. When Jesus came the first time, he made peace between people possible again. So for those who trust and follow Jesus, there is no longer to be any kind of social, racial, or ethnic, or economic barrier that separates us. We are one people in Christ, not a multitude of races. We are one race. Look at how the Bible talks about this, how Paul makes it so very clear in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, for he, Jesus, for he himself is our peace. I love that. Who has made the two, and in that day the world was divided into two groups of people, Jews, God's people, and everybody else. And there was hatred between those two groups of people. But in Christ, our peace, he's made the two into one and he's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. God's purpose was to create in himself One new humanity out of two. Thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death the hatred. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. The far away, that's the Gentiles. Those are near uh, Jews. For through him, we both have access to the same father to the Father by one spirit. So Jesus is our peace. He himself is our peace. Now again, think about those words from O Holy Night. Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. This is in like 1860 something, 1863. Civil war times, chains shall he break for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. At the forefront of abolition were Christians, and this is a song for abolitionists. Now, sadly though, that has not always been characteristic of the church through the ages, through the years, but this this is the way it's supposed to be. Jesus made it possible. This is what authentic Christianity teaches, and Paul says, the same thing in another New Testament letter. In Colossians chapter one, verse 20, he says, and through him, God has reconciled himself, to himself all things, all things, whether in heaven or on earth, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So do you see it? So the first time Jesus came, he came to die. And through his blood shed for us on the cross, He's made peace between people and God possible again, and he's made peace between people possible again. But there's one thing more that he's made possible, and that is, in Christ, a personal peace is possible that transcends our understanding. When Jesus came the first time, the third thing that he accomplished in bringing peace on earth is that he made a personal peace that transcends understanding possible for us. Now, on the night on which Jesus was betrayed, Jesus' disciples were scared and confused. Now, if you've been with us in our study of the Gospel of John, you know we have spent weeks and weeks in the upper room discourse, so you know this is true. Those disciples were scared and confused, and they believed, Isaiah 9, that Jesus was the one who would come and establish God's kingdom on earth that kingdom of shalom and peace, just like Isaiah promised. But they did not understand Isaiah 53 that said the Prince of Peace would have to suffer and die to establish his peace in our world. So on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, Jesus made this promise to his disciples. Look at it, John 14, 27. He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled and do not be afraid. Now, I want you to think about this because this is a remarkable promise. Because Jesus is saying, I'm giving you my peace and he knows what is about to happen. What's about to happen? Well, Jesus knows he's about to be arrested and tortured and crucified. He knows that those disciples are gonna be scared for their life and they're gonna run for their lives and hide He knows they'll be thrown into deep distress and despair. But in spite of those terrible circumstances that he knows are coming, he promises peace. Which, think about it. This is exactly like the situation in Isaiah's day. The promise of peace came in the midst of coming trouble. So God's kind of peace The peace that Jesus died to make possible is a different kind of peace than the world's kind of peace. The world's kind of peace is a circumstantial peace. If you have good circumstances, you have relative peace. If you have bad circumstances, there's no peace. But Jesus' peace is deeper than that. It's a peace that somehow is not dependent on circumstances, but that transcends circumstances. So do you see, Jesus says there's a kind of peace that will keep you solid and secure even in the most devastating circumstances. And those disciples, they didn't understand that then, but they would later after Jesus died and rose from the dead, after he ascended back into heaven and the Spirit, Holy Spirit came to, to live inside of them, they would know it then. So th- their peace just like the people in Isaiah's day, had to rest on the promise of future peace. Future peace. But what all the Old Testament prophets could not see, what the followers of Jesus could not see, was that the promised peace would come in two stages. In his first advent, Jesus came as the sacrificial lamb that was slain. But when he comes again, he will come as the victorious lion of Judah to rule and reign. Now, the really cool thing is when you look at the Bible as one story, the bookends of the Bible make it crystal clear that God's intention for life in this world has always been for people and God to live together with each other in peace, in shalom. The whole Bible is about this, peace on earth. Now, when I say bookends of the Bible, what do I mean? I mean Genesis 1 and 2 on the front end, and and Revelation 21 and 22 on the back end, because these two bookends show us very clearly the same exact picture of what God has always wanted. So stage two is when Jesus comes a second time, he will establish his government of peace over all the earth. There will be peace on earth, just as was promised by the prophets and the angels and by Jesus himself. Now I want you to see this, that God's intent for life in this world is for God and people to live in shalom with each other forever, and so I've got this graphic I'm going to put up, and it's a very dense graphic. Um, I, it, is, it is readable. And I want you to I'm going to walk through this because I want you to see clearly God's intent for Shalom and how it permeates the entire Bible. And by the way, I've put this as a link in the sermon notes that you can get on the app or online. So you can, you can down this late, download this later. I was thinking I probably ought to do it with a white background and black letters. Maybe we'll do that so it's easier to print out. Okay, so let's go, let me just go through this quickly. Genesis one gives us the big picture of God's creating the world and people. Genesis two gives us details, okay? So, letter A, in the beginning, God created the earth as a very good place for people in God to live together in shalom. And then, so then we see that in the middle of the earth, in the Garden of Eden, there was a tree of life. And we see that there was a river that ran through the garden. And we also see that there is no death. So Adam and Eve lived in a garden paradise in the presence of God for who knows how long. Bible doesn't say. But if we fast forward to Genesis 3, we find that when our first parents ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they sinned against God. And immediately after that, God says to Adam that the the ground, the good earth that God created to meet all of Adam's needs, now, now the world is cursed by sin which means that everything in this world is messed up. Everything comes with trouble and problems. Nothing, nothing is easy. No one and nothing is the way it's supposed to be. And letter F tells us that death entered the world. And letter G says that people are banished from paradise. In other words, God removes people from the garden so they won't eat the their tree of life and live forever in their fallen condition. And so the good world that God created and you see this from Genesis four all the way through Revelation is full of violence and oppression and conflicts. So everything from Genesis four to Revelation 20, that's the story of redemption that comes to us in and through Jesus. And this, we spend most of our time in Genesis four uh, through Revelation 20. This is the part of Bible history we're most familiar with. It's the part though that's full of violence and hatred and killing and war and oppression and famine and sorrow because we're experiencing the consequences of sin. But it's also the part where God is at work to bring us back into relationship with him and to reestablish peace in his world. And this is the gospel that God is working to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And the climax of this saving work is that God himself came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ Jesus is the son that is given to us to make peace with God and people possible again. But also, as I said, there's more to come because when Jesus comes back, he will set the whole world right again and the shalom of God will rule over all of the earth once again and you can read about that in the last two chapters of the Bible. Revelation 21 gives us the big picture, kinda like Genesis one. Revelation 22 fills in some of the details. And so look at Revelation 21, one through four. John uh, wrote, "'Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, "'for the new heaven and the first earth had passed away, "'and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, "'coming down out of heaven from God, "'and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, "'Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. "'He will dwell with them. "'They will be his people, "'and God himself will be with them and be their God.'" and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old, broken, fallen order of things has passed away. So what we see here in Revelation 21 and 22 is a complete reversal of everything. So the whole bottom half, we see that people are returned to paradise, and death ends And the world's curse is removed. And again, there is no death anymore. And again, just like Genesis 2, Revelation 22 gives us more details. And in the end, what we see in God's kingdom is that there's a river running through God's kingdom. And there's, uh, in the middle of God's kingdom is the tree of life. And in the end, which is the new beginning, of course, but God's new recreated world is very good. It's a very good place for people and God to live together in shalom forever. And God rules over the earth and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and we will worship him and we will reign with him forever and ever. Now, do you see how this book that was written by over 40 different authors over 1,500 years, do you see how the beginning and the end of God's story tell us what it's all about? It's all about peace on earth and how Jesus will make peace on earth, has made and will make peace on earth absolutely possible. So Jesus did bring peace on earth. He brought peace between people and God. He's made it possible for us uh, to experience peace between people and he's made peace of mind and heart and soul possible. And so, what the angels sang and what we sing about at Christmas is absolutely true peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Well, not exactly goodwill towards men. It's not, it doesn't, it, 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 that's a poor translation from the old King James. It actually means peace on all upon. Uh, Peace to all upon whom God's favor rests. Peace to all upon those whom God's favor rests. Who is that? Well, God's favor rests on all of those who trust in Jesus as their Prince of Peace. His favor rests on those who put their faith and trust in Jesus as their Prince of Peace. And when Jesus comes back, he will establish his government of peace and it will never end, and it will go on and on forever. And so, yes, like the prophets promised, when the peace, uh, Prince of Peace returns, the Lamb will lay down with the the lions, and nations will beat their sword into plows, and 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 they will burn their M16s and their tanks, and there'll be no terrorists, and there'll be no drug cartels, and the global economy will be. Uh, Stable and secure and there'll be no more tears and no more sorrow and no more disease and no more death, that day is coming. The zeal of the Lord will make it so, as Isaiah says. And by God's grace, if you've trusted Jesus, you're gonna be a part of that. That's our future, that's our future. And we can live in peace now because of what we know is coming in the future. And that's how God's people have always lived. Peace now based on the promise of peace that's coming. Now, the problem is, though, we live in this in-between time. Um, we, we, We do have peace with God, and we should be instruments of peace with each other. But this peace that Jesus has brought us is not yet fully realized. In other words, we're not in Revelation 21, 22 yet. So we live in this now, uh, the, the, this peace of God, the kingdom of uh, God has come now, but it is not fully realized. And we've gotta get our minds around that because one of the things that really irks me about some preachers is they overpromise what we can experience now. Like, if you trust Jesus, your life is gonna be just full of love and joy and peace and you won't have problems and troubles, no worries. And Jesus is the answer to everything. And he is. But hear me, Jesus gave us his peace, but experiencing that peace sometimes is somewhat elusive. I mean, when you're trying to figure out how to pay the bills, or when you've received a bad report from the doctor, Or when your husband or wife says, I'm done, and walks out. Or when one of your children tells you that they don't believe in God anymore. Or when you're under pressure at work, or when that contract falls through, or when you don't meet your quotas, or when there's conflict in a close relationship, or when someone has really hurt your feelings by something they said or did, or when someone that you that you love unexpectedly dies. We, we struggle to hold on to the peace that's promised. There are so many things in this in-between time, in this fallen, broken world that are beyond our ability to control. So, so many things that bring us so much emotional and spiritual unrest that even as Christians, we, we do wonder, where is the peace? Where is this promised peace? I mean, everyone in this room Everyone has things in your life right now that are stealing away the promised peace. Now, you, hear me, God has not promised you that all the circumstances in your relationships, all the circumstances in your marriage, all the circumstances with your kid, all the circumstances at work, all the circumstances at church, he hasn't promised all the circumstances related to your health. He hasn't promised peace and all of that. But he he has not promised a circumstantial peace. But he has promised us a substantial peace that's not dependent on our circumstances. And that's what Jesus promised. And we looked at this in our last message in the Upper Room Discourse before we took this break. But I want to go back to it, John 16, 33. Jesus says, I've told you these things so that in me you might have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take courage. I have overcome the world. So, Jesus says, In this world, you will have trouble. Of course, you're going to have trouble in this fallen world. You're still in the in between time when, when all of our circumstances are contaminated by the consequences of sin and darkness and brokenness. There's so many things we can't control. So, yes, for now. Yes, there's still a lot of trouble in the world. And that means there are a lot of troubling things that we have to deal with. And it's that way because the kingdom has not yet come in all of its fullness. But Jesus does say, I'm telling you the truth. In the worst of your troubles, it is possible to experience my peace. How do you experience his peace? Well, first you have to receive Jesus as your Prince of Peace. You have to trust that he is who the Bible says he is and he will do for you what the Bible promises that he will do because he died for you and rose again to give you forgiveness and life. And as we've seen, Jesus is the way to peace with God. That's the gospel. And if you've never put your trust in Jesus, your hope in him and him alone, I urge you right here, right now, to put your trust in Jesus as your Savior, as your Messiah, as your Prince of Peace. He died and rose again so your sins could be forgiven, so you could come to have eternal life, that shalom kind of fullness of life that uh, he's made possible through his death. And that knowing him enables you to experience his peace. So trust him. Tell him you do believe that he's the prince of peace. Tell him you do want to be a part of this new humanity that that he's bringing together. It's very simple. Trusting the prince of peace is the way to peace with God. Now, once you've put your faith in Jesus then he calls you to follow him as the Prince of Peace because the closer you follow the Prince of Peace, the the more you learn to trust him, the more you allow him to govern and rule over every aspect of your life, then the more peace you experience. Paul put it this way in Colossians 3.15 He's talking to a local church. He's talking to a community, a group of people, and he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since you are members of one body and you are called to peace. So you see, if, if here's the thing. If one day Jesus is going to come back and set up his kingdom and rule over every aspect of life in this world, then doesn't it only make sense that those who believe that promise and who want to be a part of God's world made new, doesn't it make sense that we would want him to govern and rule over the affairs of our life now? It's only as we submit to his rule over our lives, as we submit to his will and his wisdom now, only then will his peace rule in your heart and in your relationships. I mean, when the Prince of Peace rules in your marriage, you'll be at peace with your spouse. When the Prince of Peace rules over your relationship with your your kids, you'll be at peace with your children. When the Prince of Peace rules over your work, you'll be at peace at work. When the Prince of Peace rules over how you spend and save and, and give your money, you'll have financial peace. I'm not saying you won't have problems. I'm not saying that there won't be times of trouble, but you can regain that sense of stability and security by trusting in Jesus who rules over all of that. So what is stealing your peace? Again, I can't promise that your circumstances will get better. In fact, they may get worse, but I can promise you, that the more you know the Prince of Peace, the more you will experience his peace. The closer you follow Jesus and put what he says into practice, the more peace you experience. I love how Paul puts it, well, Isaiah, let me do this first, Isaiah said, and this is one of my favorite verses in Isaiah, Isaiah says in, in chapter 26, verse three, he says, you will keep in perfect peace those whose mind is stayed on thee because they trust in you. You will keep in perfect peace those whose mind is fixed, focused, stayed on you. And Paul echoes that same thing in Philippians chapter four. Paul is writing bloody, beaten, bruised, chained to a Roman guard. He's sitting in a dark, dank Roman jail cell, and he says... Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You see, the peace that passes understanding is possible now because the one who will one day rule over this world in peace rules over your life now. It's possible now because Jesus who's going to rule and reign over this world and establish his government of peace, he is the same Jesus that rules over your life now. This is the peace that The prophets promised us. This is the peace that the angels sang about. This is the peace that Jesus said is his peace that he gives to us. This is the peace that Paul and all the New Testament writers promise us. And this is the peace that Christmas promises us. And I hope you know this peace. Because this peace, Jesus' peace, will guard your hearts and minds in all the troubles you face in this world. That's his promise. That's his guarantee. Would you pray with me? Yes, Jesus, you are the Prince of Peace. You're the Prince of Peace now. And one day you're gonna come back as the King of Glory the Prince of Peace, to rule and reign in justice and righteousness and peace forevermore. May we live in anticipation of that great day. And in this in-between time, when we are troubled by difficult circumstances, which Lord, you know we face them every day. Teach us how to be stable and secure in the peace that Jesus gives in the midst of adversity. Holy Spirit, enable our hearts to take hold of that peace. And we beg you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.